Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Would you take your Bibles, open them to Daniel chapter 7 as we attempt to finish the chapter today in a Bible study that I've entitled, Governments or Man Are Wild. Remember, Daniel received a vision. He received, he had a dream. And what he saw uh, is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar saw from different perspectives. And we learn because God's thoughts are so different than our thoughts, it makes sense that Nebuchadnezzar would dream about the coming kingdoms of man in one way, And then Daniel, a man of God, would dream of them in another way. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of the coming empires, beginning with his. The great image that the king saw was actually a peek into the future history, the coming world kingdoms, all the way to the end of the age, to the end times. Remember the, the image had a gold head which represented Babylon. It had a, a chest and arms of silver representing the next kingdom, the Medes and the Persians. It had a belly and a thighs of bronze or brass, like Grecian Empire. It had legs of iron representing the Roman Empire. And then its feet were mixed with iron and clay that spoke of a future coming kingdom at the end of the age, a revived Roman Empire. That was man's perspective of world history. The governments of man were stately and noble and powerful and valuable. And by the way, many people still believe the governments of man are noble and stately and powerful. Many still today. I hope you're not one of them, but perhaps you are. Put more trust in the governments of man than they do in their faith in God and their trust in God. I was just watching a video before I came in today of a well-known football player, not a Denver Bronco, talking about how he can't possibly conceive of a God that would bring judgment upon man. How is it that we can follow a God? What kind of, and and he began to compare it. I didn't write it down. I could have wrote the notes down, but he began to compare it something like this. You know, how can a compassionate, loving, caring God bring about judgment? on most of the world. And of course, that's man's perspective. It's not an entirely invalid perspective, and it's not even an entirely unusual question. It's not a bad question to ask, except that he wasn't asking the question at the point of the interview, he had come to the conclusion. He had assessed where he is in this time in life, and and his assessment was, I just can't believe in the God of the Bible. I don't see it that way. But you know, God has a different perspective. He provides himself, how, how, the question really is, considering the sinfulness of man and what man has done to man and the continual rebellion of man, just man to man, not only the rebellion of man to man and what men do to each other and how they harm each other and how they hurt children and on and on the evil atrocities that man have done to men, you know, that people do. How much more than that sin and rebellion against a holy and a righteous God? And the question to ask isn't so much of why would a loving, compassionate God bring judgment. The real question is, how can he not bring judgment 
on those that have chosen to hurt and to harm each other, even inventing ways. Remember all the way back in Genesis, it talked about how the thoughts and the intents of man were always evil. They couldn't think any other way. The real question is not how can, how can a God bring judgment? The real question is this, how can an innocent man die for the sins of the world? Where, where's the equality in that? And not by force. Jesus Christ went to the cross willingly for you. While we were still yet dead in our trespasses and sins, we had nothing to offer him. Where, where we find ourselves in a place of a desperate need, so desperate we didn't even know our need. You see, the perspective of God is very different than the perspective of man. And if you happen to be a person, I just think this is like a word from the Lord for you. If you happen to be a person that gets stuck in your head and you get stuck with your thoughts and you just can't get out of, I think of this and it takes you over here, begin to pray to God. Make this a prayer that God would release you from the tyranny of your thoughts. That he would give an outlet to you to begin to God shed light on those dark places where you know a worrier gets stuck in their head. A person that likes control gets stuck in their head. A person grieving gets stuck in their head. A, a person that's anxious gets stuck there. But God wants to penetrate those thoughts and give you perspective. And for you, believer, today, the perspective is that God is sovereign. He's still on the throne. The story of your life has not been finished yet. There's still much to be done. That God's thoughts towards you are for good and not evil. That he has a plan and a purpose for your life. And how about this one? God's working all things together for the good. For those of you that love him. Those that are called according to his purpose. That interrupts that thought pattern. And you begin to allow God. Now, even if you don't allow God, he may get your attention in a dream or a vision. He may speak to you in a place where you just, you have to lay down and in a position of vulnerability where you're not fighting it anymore. And he gives Daniel a dream. He gives Daniel a perspective of the same coming, coming kingdoms. But Daniel's dream in chapter 7, we learn, was not of an image, but of wild beasts. And it's through Daniel, it's like God saying to us, here's my perspective on things. This is how I see the earth. The governor of man is not that gold and silver, what is valuable and important and to be protected. The governments of man are not beauty, but they're wild. They're beastly. And remember Daniel's dream in the first few verses began with a lion with eagle's wings representing Babylon. Then came a bear with three ribs in its mouth, the Medes and the Persians. Then came the leopard with four wings and four heads representing Greece. Then there was that dreadful and terrible beast, speaking of the Roman Empire. And then there were the horns with the little horn, which speaks of the revived Roman Empire. The kingdom overseen by this little horn, we learned in verse 9, if you want to come back to chapter 7 and verse 9, he says, Then I watched as thrones were put in place, and the ancient one sat down to judge. His clothing was white as snow, his hair was purest wool. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire. So Daniel in his dream gets a vision of heaven, the very throne of God. There was a river, verse 10, pouring out, flowing from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him. Many millions stood to attend him. And the court began its session, the books were open. I continued to watch because I couldn't hear the little horns, could I, because I could hear 
the little horn's boastful speech. I kept watching until the fourth beast was killed and its body was destroyed by fire. Then the other three beasts had their authority taken from them, but they were allowed to live a little while longer. And as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, and he approached the Ancient One and was led into his presence. He was given authority and honor and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that the people of every race, nation, and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. And so that final coming kingdom at the end of the age is destroyed by the second coming of Jesus Christ. Pick up with me in verse 15 now as we finish off the chapter. I, Daniel, was troubled by all I had seen. Do you think you would write that? You think you'd wake up in the morning and go, man, I had a crazy dream and it troubled me. I don't have an answer to it. You know, people have invented these new fanciful dream interpretation ministries. And we've already learned from the scripture, you can interpret a dream. God can interpret it if he wants to. And you never know where a dream comes from. It could be a message from God, but most often it's probably what you ate or what you watched before you went to bed. And you watched a movie or you had a thought and in your subconscious during your sleep, you've got all these thoughts coming back. But at the same time, God does use dreams and visions to get our attention, to arrest our thoughts. For Daniel, there's no mention of him in trouble, worried, or anything. God wanted to use him as a messenger. And this Daniel, he says, was, I was troubled. My visions terrified me. So I approached one of those standing beside the throne and asked him what it all meant. And he explained it to me like this. These four huge beasts represent four kingdoms that will arise from the earth. But in the end, the holy people of God, the holy people of the Most High will be given the kingdom and they'll rule forever and ever. Then, verse 19, I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, the one so different from the others and so terrifying. It had devoured and crushed its victims with iron teeth and bronze claws, trampling the remains beneath its feet. I also asked about the ten horns on the fourth beast's head and the little horn that came up afterward and destroyed three of the other horns. This horn had seemed greater than the others, and it had human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. Now, even by now, you're going to kind of freaked out by the dream. You're like, whoa, what is these horns? And it looks like a face, and it's got eyes. Look at verse 21. As I watched, this horn was waging war against God's holy people and was defeating them until the Ancient One, the Most High, came and judged in favor of His holy people. Then the time arrived for the holy people to take over the kingdom. And then he said to me, this fourth beast is the fourth world power that will rule the earth. It will be different from all the others. It will devour the whole world, trampling and crushing everything in its path. Its ten horns are ten kings who will rule the empire. Then another king will arise, different from the other ten, who will subdue three of them. He will defy the Most High and oppress the holy people of the Most High. He will try to change their sacred festivals and laws, and they will be placed under his control for a time, times, and half a time. So let's take some time ourselves to study through some of the elements of this and pinpoint some definitions of who they are and when this is happening. Now the first thing I notice is that Daniel does something wise and spiritual something just great when he was in distress. 
he sought more information. He wanted to know what was happening. You can jot it down in Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 6 it says, By wise counsel you will wage your own war, and in a multitude of counselors there's safety. In the New Living Translation it's translated, Don't go to war without wise guidance. Victory depends on having many advisors. You know, God has not created us to be in isolation, but as the body of Christ, God has created us to be in community, to be together. As one scripture says that iron will sharpen iron, that we'll come together and be a support and an encouragement, that when one is weak, the other is strong. When both are weak, they can seek the Lord together. But it's not wise, the Bible says, to isolate ourselves. We rage against all sound wisdom. And Daniel is in a place where he is terrified and troubled. And he seeks more information. This is an area where many of us fail. We tend to allow the difficulties of life to isolate us, to turn inward, to be caught up in the situation, to not, and I would say this, strategically invite people into our lives to help us, to encourage us, to be strong when we're weak, to share an, an outlet for the things that we're feeling. And so when distressing and troubling times come, so many seek to hide away and not press in deeper to the Lord. Daniel, to me, is a great example here. It says in verse 16, I approached the one. I came near. And the one that he came near to gave him the interpretation. In Psalm 73, verse 28, it says, But as for me, how good it is to be near God. Haven't you found that to be true? As for me, it's so good to be close to the Lord. In the New King James, it, it's this. It's, you probably memorized it this way. But at, it is good for me to draw near to the Lord. The Bible says that if we draw near to God, he'll draw near to us. There's that sense of experiencing his ever presence in our lives when we choose to draw near. When we choose, I think tonight, our gathering now, flipping on the radio, listening to a podcast, is our attempt to draw near to the Lord in a very busy, busy, did I say busy? Busy world and life that we're in. Just so full. They promised us years ago that technology would save us time. And yet, technology seems to have increased our capacity. We didn't know how much we could do in a day until we had technology. And it hasn't really helped us as much as it has added more to our plates. In Psalm 65 verse 4 it says, What a joy for those, who for those you choose to bring near, those who live in your holy courts. What festivities await us inside your holy temple. And I know that folks go, men and women, young people even, I've noticed lately, go through seasons where they spend a lot of time on the property. And so when I see someone and I'm here and then I, go, I leave late, they leave late, I get here early, they get here early, and I'll see them and we make this joke about being on the, the, the property and being in a place serving the Lord. I, I like to make this joke, oh, I guess we should set up a cot for you because I don't doubt that you even went home. And if you did go home, you turned right around and came back. And that's it's not the building and it's not the property that's, that's holy in and of itself. It's what it represents. It represents, this place represents an opportunity to draw near to God. 
It represents, I mean, hey man, if, if you had a choice to be out at the club tonight and being here at church in this building, you made a good choice. You made a good choice. If you're listening to me on the radio right now, you go, but uh, I'm on my way to the club. Make a U-turn <laughs> and draw near to the Lord. It's a good chance you're not going to find the Lord at the club. It's a good chance you're not going to find the Lord at a bar. But there's a great chance you're going to draw near to the Lord when you come together with other believers and worship Him. There's a good chance when you get up and you face the reality and you say, no, I'm going to gather. Nothing's going to hold me back from gathering with the saints. And Daniel gives us a great example. Don't forget where he's at in verse 15. He is troubled and terrified, and yet that presses him in. But notice the answer he received was still very difficult. It didn't solve his problems. And so we need to come to the Lord with a blank slate when we draw near. We need to come to Jesus and be satisfied with his presence, even if we find ourselves dissatisfied by his answer. We need to find ourselves enjoying him, not for what we get, but for who he is. We so easy turn, things turn into a relationship with God that we're only happy when things go our way. And we're only satisfied when things are happening according to our plans. But you see, we may come to God. You may be praying today, and the answer is not what you expected. And you're brought to another test. What will I do when things don't work out my way? And I see this with Daniel in a sense where he comes and he, want, he asks the question, but the answer does not settle him. The revelation of this dream is he's given insight of the end of the world, what things are going to go down right before the second coming of the Holy One, one like the Son of Man, Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus Christ, and his soon return. Daniel, did you really want to know that? He says, yes, I did. He's also given insight onto this character that we know as this last one world ruler. We know him as Antichrist. And a lot is to be said about the Antichrist in Daniel's dream. In this chapter, we see a great contrast in the last two kingdoms that inhabit the earth. The revived Roman Empire, the toes mixed with clay of iron in chapter 2, the ten horns that come later here in chapter 7, and then this one world ruler. Would you hold your places? Turn over to Revelation with me in Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation chapter 6, we're given insight more and more on what's happening in the last days, primarily into the last seven years of human history. Notice with me in Revelation chapter 6, it says, As I watched, the Lamb broke the first of the seven seals on the scroll, and I heard one of the four living beings say with a loud voice, like thunder, Come! And I looked up, and I saw a white horse standing there, its rider carried a bow and a crown and was placed on his head. He rode out to win many battles and gain the victory. And when the lamb broke the second seal, I heard the second living being saying, Come, and the another horse appeared, a red one. Its rider was given a mighty sword and the authority to take peace from the earth. And there was war and slaughter everywhere. And many of you know this is the four horsemen of the apocalypse that was following the other three following the Antichrist as he comes as described here in Daniel. Turn over to chapter 13 in Revelation. Chapter 13. Those of you that want to study such things, we went through Revelation verse by verse. All of these studies are up on the app. 
And you can go through verse by verse through Revelation, or you can just go through these chapters to learn more about the Antichrist. But it says in verse 13, or excuse me, chapter 13, verse 1, it says, I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, and it had seven heads and ten horns and ten crowns on its horns. And written on each head were the names that blaspheme God. The beast looked like a leopard, but it had the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his own power and throne of great authority. And I saw that one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. The whole world marveled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. They worshiped the dragon for giving the beast such power, and they also worshiped the beast. Who is the great beast, they exclaimed, who is able to fight against him? And the beast was allowed to speak great blasphemies against God, and he was given authority to do whatever he wanted for 42 months, and he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And he was given authority to rule over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all the people who belong to this world worship the beast. These are the ones whose names are not written in the book of life that belongs to the lamb who was slaughtered before the world was made. Anyone who has ears should he listen and understand. So we have this imitation as Revelation 13 shows us this man who comes on the scene at the beginning of the great tribulation period, Satan's Messiah, the imitation of Jesus Christ. He ushers in a new world order and the one world government that's used for control during the great tribulation period. It's interesting as you study prophecy because it doesn't take too long. We were reading a book, we were reading the book of the month today. We did the first chapter as a, as a staff this morning on the church side. We, were, we began the first chapter in how, on being a servant of God. And Warren Wiersbe mentioned that he started ministry in 1950. That's when he began his ministry. So we're reading a book that's ministering to us from a man that basically served God for 70 years of his life, 7 0. Now in 1950, the technology that existed then, and the way that the world operated, the banking system, the primitiveness of com computers and the dream of computers, if you were to talk about a one world government, or you would talk about a one world banking system, if you were to talk about a one world religion, if you would talk about one man that could rule the entire globe, and you would say that you're teaching it based on the authority of God's word, you're teaching it based on what you see, I mean, it would take a tremendous amount of faith, wouldn't you agree, in, in 1950 to teach these things because you didn't see them. You didn't. You, what you saw was the exact opposite. So, oh, yeah, one world government. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm still writing my checks with crayons. We, we don't even, the checking system doesn't even work. I, we're, we're still using, like, you can, you can think of the things that those in 1950s were dealing with. And it would require a pastor to stand in the pulpit and say, thus saith the Lord. I know you don't see it, but the Bible says so. And I know you can't figure it out, but the Bible says so. I know that it's hard to conceive, but the Bible says so. And here we are 70 years later, and people still mimic and mock the Bible, even though we see so much more. It does require faith still to this day to trust God in how he's unfolded the end of the age. But we live in a generation that has seen things that no other generation has seen. Just this week, some of you have sent me emails. I got at least five or six of them and a couple text messages on top of that 
where you read the article where Amazon is creating a technology where you can pay for your goods using the palm of your hand. Imagine that, the palm of your hand. Just 10 years ago, can you imagine, oh, you will carry a computer in your pocket and you will pay for goods and services with that computer that's in your pocket. And immediately you think about this big screen and this huge app, how's I gonna fit in my pocket? And they're going, no, it's coming. And you're going to be able to pay through things and you're going to be able to take, you remember they, were, they invented the credit card and they started to, to put the numbers together and there was the strip on the back. But now, I was just at Costco, all I need to do is tap that baby on there and they're happy to take my money. It was, I don't even need to swipe it anymore. They're going to know when I'm walking in the door pretty soon and just say, it's on your tab, Mr. Taylor. No problem. How do you know who I am? We know. We know. How about the technology that was just written about, I read about it first on Drudge Report, where there is an app in existence, it's not for commercial use, but there is an, an app in existence that some governmental agency are using that has compiled over three billion photographs and the information associated with those photographs. I suspect a few of you are in those photographs, a few of us, that you can take a picture, this is what they say, you can take a picture using this app and that app will give you all the pertinent information of that person. The world's technology is evolving so quickly it's hard to keep up with it all. And as you think about the adaptation over the years, it wasn't too long ago, folks, that we flipped a phone open. It wasn't too long ago. It wasn't too long ago that we waited till 7.01 to make a phone call because the minutes were free. <laughs> it wasn't too long ago that we read newspapers that were delivered to our front door, that were printed on paper. Paper, yes, we got the news from newspaper. And the rapid changes that we have, yes, it requires faith to trust in God's word because some of this we still don't see. But God has allowed the generation in which we live to see more than any other generation to, I believe, give us that clarion call to whom much is given, much is required. What are we doing with what we know? I know when you mention the, the word antichrist, it's easy for people to make fun of you and mock you and joke around with you. You know, we, don't, we use the word antichrist, but other way, there's other phrases that describe him. He's known as the son of perdition. He's known as the wicked one. He's known as the seed of the serpent. There's about 50 titles given to the antichrist in the Bible. But we like antichrist, capital A, Mr. Antichrist. And I know when you mention him, you get a lot of people that make fun. They, they kind of put the Antichrist in the same category as Peter Pan and gremlins and other myth mythological characters. But the Bible says that when he comes on the scene, the world will embrace him and accept him and elevate him. And we think, how can that be possible? How is it possible that the world will embrace him? We, kind of, we, can, we can accept that part of the world will embrace him, but the Bible speaks of the entirety of the world. How is that possible? Let me give you a couple suggestions. Number one, prior to the Antichrist being embraced, not that he will, he will already be alive at the time of the rapture, but prior to him being embraced, the rapture of the church takes place. And so believers in Jesus Christ are not here to launch the cry after the fact. They're in the presence of the Lord. Secondly, 
I don't know if you've noted this. Maybe you've experienced it personally. I have. You might be able to make this observation of the world in which we live. Because remember, everything we're talking about, technology, the, the one world ruler, the one world government, and the one world religion, they're all tied together. These are spiritual things. Literal things in the world, but with spiritual meaning. And you go, Ed, what do you mean? Well, you know how the Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers? Like, like what the Bible's trying to teach us is, is there's a reality here. You might be at odds with someone in the room right now. You might be upset with them. But, you, you know, the battle is actually not with them. There's a demonic force behind the people. And we, we, we make a great error when we make it about the people. It's not about the people. We don't wrestle with the people, even though they're, the, they're, they're often the tool that stirs up stuff. We wrestle against flesh and blood. So there's the physical reality. We don't deny that. But there's the spiritual significance. And so when you think of a one-world government, you think of a one-world ruler, you think of a one-world banking system, you've got to remember this. You've got to remember one-world religion as well. Remember this. It is a spiritual commitment against the one true God. It's a spiritual commitment. Like some Christians will call the radio show and they're afraid that they'll take the mark of the beast by accident. Nobody will take the mark of beast by accident. It will be a conscious choice to rebel against God. Now there's a lot of things going on that seems to influence and to change. But here's the point I want to make. And maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you've missed it. But we live in a culture right now that everything is upside down. We live in a culture where, and it's not, don't get stuck just in your own country. This is a worldwide phenomenon, a worldwide rebellion against the one true God, a worldwide wholesale embracing of anything and everything but the one true God. And we live in a culture where good is called evil and evil is called good. And when that's repeated over and over again, when it's taught within the world system's education system, in the world's culture's education system, when that's all you hear on the television and where you hear, see in the movies and what you listen to if you choose certain types of music where the world's culture is just constantly changing your mind, it makes a person very willing to do whatever it takes for comfort and ease because they've been conditioned to think that evil is good and good is evil. And so everything's moving in this direction and it just keeps, it keeps like giving me this sense of burden and urgency to beg with you parents and grandparents to disciple your children. As a church family, we are unable to do what your job is, what your God-given role is. We are able to come alongside of you. What a great time I had today in our academy with the kids that were here as I had the privilege of doing chapel with them. It's something I don't get to do very often because of my schedule, but they've rearranged things to allow me to do chapel and just to talk about the things of the Lord. I, I opened up into the book of Acts and we, we talked about Peter and John going up to the temple and the healing of the lame man and we started picking that apart and we did a little play with the kids and we, we showed them visually what it was like and then I talked to them. I think they were third, fourth, and fifth graders, I think is what they were. And I looked at every, all those kiddos in the eye, every one of them, all throughout each of the rows there, and I began to talk to them about sin and about their sin and about their need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, their need to understand the danger of sin. 
oh, I didn't list a bunch of things to watch out for. I gave them that exhortation of the reality of in their life right now, now is the time to follow Jesus. And as I shared with them the gospel after Acts chapter 3, I gave an invitation to those kids in our school. And out of those kids, there was one in particular that started dialoguing with me. And I'm very hopeful with that, that young child, very hopeful that the gospel took root. But I had everyone bow, you know, for the sake of not being embarrassed, being the kids that they are, had everyone bow their heads, close their eyes, and I just asked them if they wanted to follow Jesus to pray after me. And most of the kids prayed. And you go, Ed, how many times are you going to let them pray? Every time they want to. The Bible says, suffer the Jesus said, let those kids come to me. I didn't stop them and give them a Bible study and correct all their theology at third grade. Say, look, we only get saved once. You don't need to be back. Hey, every time you want to crowd to Jesus, I'll train you to crowd to Jesus. You do that. You ask for God to appropriate his blood in your life. You ask God to forgive you of your sins. Those are the exact words. I said, ask God, forgive me of my sin. And the kids are saying it out loud. Listen, parents, I'm privileged. I counted a joy to be a part of your life, to be a part of your kid's life, but you have more influence on your kids than I do. I'm sure it didn't take, before I even walked out the door, they forgot who I was. And thinking, what's for lunch? <laughs> you spend so much more time with them. You have so much more influence in, the, in their lives. They listen to you. I know it may not feel like that. They listen to you. They listen to everything. They see everything. And they process it in their little minds and come to a conclusion of whether they want to follow God or not. I know as we look at the end times, we recognize this is a spiritual situation in a culture that calls evil good and good evil. Many think he's not real, the Antichrist. But on the other hand, I, I want to warn the body of Christ today. On the other, while some people make fun of the Antichrist, other people make it their entire goal in life to figure out who he is. And they're just looking for the Antichrist under every bush and every news article. And over the years, it's interesting, this, this Antichrist, he's described you know, as, as a smooth operator, bringing peace to a world that's in turmoil. And people will embrace him, accept him, elevate him. And over the years, this isn't just a modern thing, over the years, there's been all these guesses as people focus on the Antichrist, focus on the Antichrist. In ancient times, you know, people thought it was Nero, Caligula. In our day and age, people uh, said that Hitler was the Antichrist, Gorbachev, Kissinger, Putin, Obama, Trump, and even Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton can't be the Antichrist. He's a man. But some people like, hey, that's, they'll write a whole blog, and then people were folded around, and just read your Bible. And let me say this. Personally, I don't care who the Antichrist is. I could care less. I'm not looking for the Antichrist. The Bible never teaches me to look for the Antichrist. I'm not studying people, not checking out wounds. I'm not looking at everyone that walks through the doors here for that sinister gleam in your eye. Are you the Antichrist? Are you that? Is he the Antichrist? The Bible teaches me to look for Jesus Christ, the blessed hope. He tells me to look for his soon return. When I look for the Antichrist and I'm all in involved in that, then I find myself stuck in the moment. When I look to Jesus Christ, the Bible says that I become a more purified man. Holiness and urgency. And this Antichrist, well, let's go back to our text in chapter 7 in our few minutes we have together. 
And look what happens to him. Look at verse 8. There's this, as he was looking at the horn, suddenly another small horn appeared. Three of the first horns were tore out to make room for him. This little horn had eyes like human eyes and a mouth boasting arrogantly. Verse 11, I continued to watch because I could hear the little horn's boastful speech. I kept watching until the force beast was killed and its body destroyed by fire. Look at verse 20. I asked about the ten horns on the fourth beast's head and the little horn that came up afterward and destroyed three of the other horns. This horn seemed greater than the others, and it had human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. Look at verse 21. As I watched, this horn was waging war against God's holy people and was defeating them. Look at verse 25. It says, He will defy the Most High and oppress the holy people of the Most High. He will try to change their sacred festivals and laws and they'll be placed under his control for a time, times, and a half a time. Come back to verse 23. It says that he said to me, this fourth beast is the fourth world power that will rule the earth and I'll be, it'll be different from the others. It will devour the whole world, trampling and crushing everything in its path. Verse 11, if you come back to verse 11, it says, I continue to watch because I hear the little horn's boastful speech. I kept watching until the fourth beast was killed, its body destroyed with fire. And then finally in verse 26, we read, then the court will pass judgment and all his power will be taken away and completely destroyed. So we've got this little horn speaking pompous, arrogant, boastful words. Its appearance, his appearance is greater than the others. He made war against the saints God's holy people, he devours the whole earth, trampling and crushing, the beast is destroyed, then taken away and consumed and completely destroyed. And again, if you're taking notes, Revelation chapter 12 tells us that Satan's real battle is with the nation of Israel. His real battle is to destroy the lineage of Messiah. And Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 24 that the last seven years of human history, the earth will be in upheaval. Would you turn over to Matthew 24 with me, please? Matthew 24, and pick up with me there in verse 21, as Jesus describes what it's like in the final days. On a broader scale, notice how Jesus describes the latter times in Matthew 24, 21. For there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began. It will never be so great again. In fact, Unless that time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive, but it will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen people. It's going to be a very challenging time. Would you turn over to 2 Timothy now with me? 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, we learn a little bit of what it's going to be like in chapter 3. And once again, we reviewed this today in our pastoral meeting, just being reminded of those of us serving in the last days serve in a much more difficult season of ministry. Notice how Paul tells Timothy to be ready for the last times. He says this, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. You might have remembered it as perilous times. Times that are just filled with peril and difficulty. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They'll be unloving, unforgiving. They'll slander others and have no self-control. 
They'll be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends and be reckless. They'll be puffed up with pride and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but will reject the power that can make them godly. They will have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. They will act religious. They will want people to think that they're okay. They want to pretend that they're all right with God. They're going to act that way, but all the while rejecting the power that can bring godliness. And what does he say at the end? Stay away from people like that. Stay away from people like that. And the end times going to be a very difficult time. In the seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation period, with the church already raptured in heaven with it, and being present with her bridegroom, God's attention then in those seven years is turned toward the nation of Israel to fulfill all the promises that he made to his beloved, the apple of his eye. For more biblical teaching on that, you'll find that in Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10, and Romans chapter 11. And then once again, we've gone through these, sec- these passages verse by verse, looking at God's eternal plan for the nation of Israel. The Antichrist will come on the scene small, bringing unity, bringing people together, where some of you shake your head and you say, I just don't see how it can happen. We look in our own nation that's greatly divided today. We see in a nation an un- inability to agree we see a culture that just loves to argue and loves to fight and seems to be coming, becoming more divided on every level that there can possibly be a division, which makes the demonic presence in the Antichrist all the more powerful. And he'll come on small, but he'll grow. And in the middle of, and he'll make a peace treaty with the nation of Israel. And beyond all of our, beyond all of our ability to comprehend it, I believe that part of the peace treaty that will be made with Israel will usher in the rebuilding of the temple. And you know some theories of the rebuilding of the temple is that the current dome of the rock, you know that gold dome, according to the specs on the temple mount, could be rebuilt, the temple could be rebuilt right next to it. And it would sit in the court of the Gentiles. Now that would take some diplomacy (laughs) because again, if you're going to Israel with us in a couple weeks, you will see what a volatile place, just the way it is right now, what a volatile place the Temple Mount is. See, all of this is happening and will be fulfilled and God will make it come to pass. And it's in the middle of the seven years, three and a half years into it, that he will set up an image in the temple and demand to be worshiped. And he will turn his back on this treaty and show his true colors, and he'll turn on the world, and with that in mind, pick up in verse 25, here in Daniel 7 now. He will defy the Most High, and oppress the holy people of the Most High. He will try to change their sacred festivals and laws. They'll be placed under his control for a time, times, and half a time. But then the court will pass judgment, and all his power will be taken away and completely destroyed. And the sovereignty and power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be given to the holy people and to the Most High, and his kingdom will last forever, and all the rulers will serve and obey him. And that was the end of the vision. I, Daniel, was terrified by my thoughts, and my face was pale with fear, but I kept these things to myself. I love that. The Antichrist will not rule forever. He will be taken down. 
the world ruler, the little horn, will fall at the hands of the Most High, the Ancient of Days, the second coming of Jesus Christ. You can write it down, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And notice in chapter 7, back in Daniel, where it says the sovereignty, power, greatness of the kingdoms under heaven will be given to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will last forever. If you like to write in your Bibles, you can circle His, and you can write next to that, Jesus Christ. That's who he's speaking of. When, when will the man in the governments of, of man learn that? So many rulers today see that great image. They look at a political career and they see power and control. They see the ultimate. This is the ultimate to be ruler over people. They see the opportunity to rule rather than their obligation to God. Politics has overtaken prayer and policies overrule reliance. And, and think of in the invention of the United Nations, and the thought that they have that they will truly usher in world peace. Do you know hanging in the United Nations in one of their hallways is actually a very familiar Bible passage. In Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4 they have this quoted. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And so what do the leaders of the United Nations say? They say that's our goal. We agree with God. That's our goal. Our goal is, that's why we're here. We're, we're here to uphold the biblical promise and the elimination of war and to usher in peace and to eliminate hostility. But the problem is, is that they forgot a very important part of that verse. And they didn't quote it. Because Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4 actually starts with this. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. Then they shall beat their swords into plowshares. You see, Isaiah prophesies a time where there'll be peace and unity, but he also specifies how it will happen. And you can rest assured, the United Nations ain't gonna bring it in. That's not gonna happen. They forgot, conveniently, to mention the power of God. The UN's not going to bring peace. The governments of man will not be lasting peace. Even in the difficulties you have on personal level, where you are, at, at, you are lacking peace with a family member, a friend, you won't even usher in peace. It will only be the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to bring about the right conditions to bring reconciliation in your life. And some of you have been beating your head on the wall thinking, I've done everything I can and it's still not happening. I've done everything I can and it's still not happening. Save yourself the agony and the pain. Step back and begin to pray for God to work on the other side. Because he's the one that brings in true peace. The governments of man are pictured like beasts in Daniel's vision. Wild, ferocious hungry for more power, hungry for more territory, hungry for more control. Beasts get angry easily. They guard their territory. They shed blood without thinking, without morality. A beast roams around and destroys at will. Have you ever seen, if you've been camping for the, how many of you guys camp? So when you guys are out camping, have you ever seen a little table set up and the grizzly bears are there and it says, save the rabbits? And they're taking your signatures and say, just join us. We want to, s have you ever seen that? No, because bears eat rabbits. And if you do see that, it's a trap. They want to eat you too. 
No, animals aren't interested in saving animals. They're not, they're not moral creatures. Animals are not created in the image of God. Oh, don't misunderstand me. Don't mistake me. The Bible says that a man of God, a woman of God, takes care of their animals. And so this is not permission to somehow abuse and harm animals. It's just simply a distinction. Animals are not human. They're wild and beastly. Bears, when they go fishing, they don't apply for fishing licenses. They just go take care of business. They're brutal creatures. I don't know why I'm picking on the bears tonight, but so be it. Remember, friend, whatever you're facing tonight, God's view is so much different than your view of every aspect of life. And we would do well to ask God for his perspective on life, on my situation. We would do well to trust him because the coming of the Lord is right up ahead. And the only thing that's going to really matter is have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? Like I told the kiddos today, the real problem in your life is sin. It's not merely making a mistake, although I will, I will come to your level and say, yeah, I make mistakes all the time, Ed. Well, you know, so do I. But I want to take you from your level to a higher level. And what you call mistakes, the Bible calls sin. And it's not just merely a mistake with another person. Sin is against a holy, righteous, perfect God. And you know how you are, and I am. I'm not a perfect man, and when someone hurts me or harms me or makes them, it hurts. It's, it, I, I'm deeply offended. I'm hurt. I'm respond. I might get angry when someone does something to hurt me, hurt my wife, hurt my family, hurt my friends, hurt our church. I get upset. I take it personally. And I'm just a human being. God, when he looks upon humanity, he takes our sins personally. But in a way that he has taken them so personally that out of love, he provided a way out for you. That today, if you would surrender your life to Jesus Christ, God will forgive your sins. No matter where you've been and what you've done, what you've been into, how deep you might be, God is ready and willing to forgive you of your sins if today you will turn away and repent of your sins. He's willing. He's able. He's not hurt in the same way we are. When we take it personally, it's like we want to avenge ourselves. But when God takes it personally, it provokes love. And he's already demonstrated he's not going to send Jesus Christ again to die on the cross. He died once for all. When Jesus Christ returns, it will be to usher in eternity. And so you know what's going to happen, gang. It's, we have more evidence today than they did 70 years ago. And it doesn't even take 70 years. Every single year, they're inventing some new thing. You see what they're doing with robots and artificial intelligence. And, and my son was telling me today that they got a new a thermostat that can tell when you leave the house. What are they? Has it got eyes that's going around the corner? Like, what are they creating? I told him I'm never coming to his house now. No thermostat checking up on me. <laughs> but I mean, it's happening. And we just need to open our eyes, not look for the Antichrist, we're to look for Jesus Christ and to live our lives unto him. So, Father, thank you for the joy of studying your word and the excitement. I know that we're reading through the Bible and these dreams, they don't make much sense. We don't know what they are, but I'm grateful that you've given us insight of what Daniel saw. We, we actually have more insight than Daniel knew at the time. And may it stir us to change and to live our lives in a way that is lived in purity and holiness. May we have a reason, an answer for the hope that lies within us. May we learn how to communicate 
in a way that demonstrates your love. And, you know, maybe we learn how to connect with people, guarding the truth, holding fast to the truth, but delivering it in such a way that it'll be received. And so I just pray, God, for those listening today that have never given their life to you, that today would be that day, that they would finally acknowledge their sin before you and turn away from it and surrender their lives to follow you. And I want to give you that chance today. If you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, like you've never responded, because one of the things I told the kids, I'm going to tell you, when an invitation comes, you only have two choices. Jesus said something very similar. Jesus said, if you're not for him, you're against him. And think of the invitation. I say, hey, let's go follow Jesus. You can either answer yes to that or no to that. So that if you say, well, Ed, I'm not really compelled right now. You didn't really do a good enough job to convince me. So maybe another day, that's no. Well, you know, I was raised in the church and I don't really believe, kind of like the football player I'm mentioning today, I don't really believe uh, about that God and I just can't really, you know, I just really can't. Okay, that's no. Well, give me some time to think about it. Okay, that's no. There's no middle ground. And just in the invitation, it elicits a response from you, the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing, let me warn you. Not only do you choose a position that's against God, but every time you resist God, you get a little harder. You get a little less receptive. You get a little farther away from God if there's even such a thing. And God is continually reminding you of his great love for you greater than anything you've ever experienced on the human level. Unconditional, true. Imagine that just with your mind. True, unconditional love, even as you are right now. With all your weaknesses and faults and failures and how you don't measure up and what you said today and what you thought today and what you planned today doesn't stop God's love from you. He's just continually bringing you. He's going, no, I'm going to work on that in your life. So if you're here today, you'd say, Ed, I do. I want to follow God. I want to respond to that invitation. Uh, would you just stand to your feet? I'd like to pray with you. That's my chance to be able to see you. Uh, standing doesn't save you. God bless you here up front. This isn't the mechanism by God's, you know, raising hands, standing, walking, coming to the altar. None of that saves you. But what it does do is it marks a point in time for you. God is, you read the Bible, you notice something. God's very symbolic. Just in the, the, what we read tonight, very symbolic. That's how he helps us remember. And this standing, this acknowledgement, this following, maybe in the car you need to just pull your car over on Parker Road or pull your car over on Bowles and just stop what you're doing and acknowledge God in your life. It'll be a memorable time. It's always on a midweek Wednesday. I always remember where I was sitting. When I responded, the pastor asked me to get up and walk all the way down. And I remember it like it was yesterday. Anyone else that would say, that's me? You know, even if I don't see you here, just like the Lord sees you downstairs in the overflow, or I want you to know that God loves you, that he cares for you. So if you guys would just open your eyes. We got a brother over here that I want you guys to like lay your hands on that way. You guys that are close to him, come and lay hands on him. The rest of the room, we're going to like go this way toward this guy, and we're going to pray with him. I actually met him before service. God's been working on him before he even comes in. And we're grateful. 
proud of you. It's a good decision. So pray with me, because the Bible says that if you confess your mouth, with, if you confess the Lord Jesus, you confess with your mouth, let me read it to you. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I want to help you do that. And so repeat after me, would you? You could say, dear God, I admit that I've sinned against you, and I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins. I believe you sent Jesus to live for me, to die for me, and I believe he rose again from the dead to save my soul. And I dedicate my life to following you from this day forward, and I'm asking for your help to turn away from my sinful past. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.